Let's go ahead and open God's Word this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 again. Last week we started a series uh, that we entitled Upside Down Kingdom, uh, Lessons Learned from the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we used our time together to uh, set an introduction uh, to get to know a little bit about this greatest sermon ever preached by Jesus himself and uh, got to know some of the people that were a part uh, of uh, this sermon. And uh, at the end of last week's introduction, we uh, began to look at what it meant to be poor in spirit, that that was a prerequisite uh, not only uh, for this series. uh, To glean anything from this series, we would need to understand our spiritual bankruptcy before God. But even greater than that, we needed to understand that our spiritual bankruptcy was a prerequisite to inheriting the kingdom of God and to uh, receiving all that God has, not only in eternity, but in this life as well. And now we come uh, to the second of the beatitude, the second of those kingdom attitudes that God is calling us uh, to be a part of, to make our own. And uh, we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, verse 4 this morning. And let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word, and uh, we'll get into our text right away. Starting in verse 1. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it's okay. Uh, Just grab that pew Bible and the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 809. Page 809. Matthew chapter 5. I'll start in verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and Jesus taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's our text this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer again. Father, we come to you once again out of a dependent heart, knowing that apart from you we can do nothing. Lord, we come knowing we are spiritually bankrupt and that we need your grace each and every day, each and every hour, Lord, we need you. And so, Lord, we turn to your word now, your word that is truth, and we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth this morning. Lord, open our hearts and minds. What you're going to share with us this morning seems so foreign to us as a people, and yet this is the true way of life. This is the true way to abundant living. And so, Lord, we put ourselves in submission to your word, knowing you know best and knowing your ways are always higher and better than our ways. So to you we give the glory. To you we give the honor for all that is said and done in this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we continue in this first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and as we begin to address these Beatitudes, it becomes quite evident very quickly in Jesus' Sermon that He loves to keep His listeners on their toes. Jesus was a master of His words, and He used them with great effectiveness. Whether you were a skeptic or a seeker, Uh, or a disciple and follower of Jesus, Jesus' words throughout the sermon are going to literally stop them in their tracks, and it will do the same for us. And the second beatitude is one that right away at the beginning of his message stops people, and it causes them to think. I wonder if there was a Jerusalem Times or Jerusalem Herald newspaper uh, journalist that was there listening to it who no doubt had to go back and say, Jesus, are you sure that's what you want your quote to be? When he says, blessed, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
And let's stop there for a moment. And if that doesn't bring some questions out in our minds, well, then something's wrong. Because what Jesus is saying literally is happy are the sad. Happy are the sad. Now, that's a paradox in terms. The happy life that is established in the approval of God himself, that blessed life, you're telling me, Jesus, means I need to be a mourner. It means I need to be sad. To find joy, I have to mourn. To find peace, I have to live in a perpetual state of urgency because of the sadness that is brought to me. It is here that Jesus will, once again, my friends, begin to flip the world's kingdom upside down and you will see that Jesus is telling us about a life that is very different than that of the world. Because this life is going to be found in him and what he is looking for is for us to be mourners. Now, what in the world does that mean and how do we begin to apply this truth to our own lives? There's four things I want to look at this morning under the heading, Happy Are the Sad. And the first thing is we need to understand the practice that is commanded. Right away, we need to understand once again that the Beatitudes are not suggestions. What Jesus isn't saying is he's not saying to us, you know, hey, if you could cry a little more, then you would really appreciate what it means to be happy. That's not what he's saying. What he's not saying to those who find themselves a little more melancholy is that you're doing a good thing. You know, you who walk around maybe a little more discouraged than others, uh, that you found life. You have found what it means uh, to live the abundant life. That's not what he's saying as well. We need to understand a little bit about what Jesus is saying. And we need to recognize that what he's saying is not a suggestion, but it's a command. God is saying, you want to live a blessed life, then it's going to mean that you are going to have to be a mourner. What does he mean by that? Let's examine this for a couple moments. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus uses the Greek word pentheo, and we see that what he's talking about is a spirit of anguish. A spirit of anguish. Pentheo is the Greek word there, as I said. In the New Testament Greek language, there were nine words for sorrow or sadness. And the word pentheo was the strongest or most severe of all of them. It represents the most heartfelt and deepest grief in the entire Greek language. It was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to speak of the grief that struck Jacob when he learned that his son Joseph had been killed. Remember the story of Jacob? He's got his 12 sons and one that he, he uh, has a special relationship with, Joseph. He gives him a coat of many colors. Joseph uh, then is given the assignment one day to take food and provisions to his brothers who hate him, who despise the very essence that his father has taken a liking to him. And as a result of that, out of their jealousy and their rage, They sell Joseph off. Well, his dad doesn't know that because what they do is when they come back, they take the coat that now has been ripped, they stain it in blood, and they bring it to their father, Jacob, and they say, a wild animal has killed your son. And Jacob mourns. Deep grief is felt by this father who has lost his son. Then in Mark chapter 16, verse 10, we are told that the disciples are mourning in this way over the death of Jesus Christ. That when Mary comes to announce that Jesus has risen just as he said he was going to, it says that she comes into the place where the disciples were mourning and weeping. You see, this word pentheo speaks of an idea of deep inner agony. 
which may or not be expressed by outward weeping, wailing, and lament. You see, what Jesus is not saying is, blessed are those who shed tears over a Hallmark movie. Blessed are those who find themselves a little more teary-eyed over a melancholy spirit or situation. What he's talking about, and please hear me this morning, is the kind of grief that takes your breath away. The deep and profound agony and loss that makes time stand still. I've seen it once in my life. Many of you know I lost my older brother in a car accident. In the morning that my parents found out about the loss of their firstborn son, when I was brought home, I had that morning had gone to school unknowing that my uh, brother uh, had not made it home. And uh, when I got home, my mom was with the police officers in the foyer. And I want you to see this. She was on her hands and her knees begging this cruel joke to be over and begging for her son to be brought to her. And when they continued to tell her, we're sorry, but your son is dead, the guttural noises that came from the depth of my mom literally brought chills to my spine. The agony that she was facing was something I had never experienced before. And even the very mention of it now, some 20 20 years later, undoes me. You see, the kind of anguish and agony that Jesus is talking about doesn't affect just the mourner, but all those around. It cuts to the very depth of who we are. Jesus is not saying, blessed are simply just people that shed a tear. Blessed are those who are cut to the heart, who are broken hearted. And they will find the comfort that God wants to bring. It's a spirit of anguish. Notice it's an active mindset. Look at the text. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who have mourned. He doesn't say to my mom, Michelle Bedall, hey, Michelle, blessed are you. You lost the son, and, and that's sad, but now time has covered uh, all of those issues and struggles, and so you've been comforted. He doesn't say, blessed are those who have mourned. Notice he doesn't say, blessed are those who might mourn or will mourn. He doesn't speak of it in a future sense. He says it in the present tense. Blessed are those who mourn. It identifies itself as a continual state of mourning. Better translated this passage would be, blessed are the mourners who are in an ongoing pursuit of mourning. You see, my parents, of course, you know my dad. Many of you know my dad is an immigrant from the Middle East, from Iraq. And uh, mourning is a part of the culture and custom in Middle Eastern uh, funerals. You see, what will happen is, is, and just to help you understand, in Western funerals, if you were to bring a Middle Eastern person to a Western funeral, they would think a party has broken out. Because we take death, and, and for a moment as we walk by the casket and we, we, we pay our respects and, and all of that, um, we then quickly move and, and we go to the chairs you know, in the funeral home and we talk everyday business. Yes, we're somber. Yes, there's a sense of respect and sadness and solemnness to the occasion. But then interaction begins to take place. You will no doubt at some point or another at times, depending on, of course, the, the type of death that has taken place, people go on very quickly with, with their lives. In the Middle Eastern culture, 
Uh, You don't have that opportunity. You see, the family brings not only those who are mourning the ones close to the family, but literally they bring mourners to the funeral. What that means is there are people, usually it's a group of older women, who come and they weep and they wail. And you say, well, why would they do that? They may not have known the person. They have come to the point that they recognize how awful death is. And they come and in loud voices weep and wail and mourn. Now, why do they do that? So that everyone who's a part of this will recognize this is not a time of joy. This is not a time of celebration. This is not a time of fun and games. This is a time dedicated to the pursuit of mourning over someone who is lost. In the Middle Eastern culture, 40 days will go by before your life gets back to normal. And what I mean by that is you do anything of fun. So, if you are going to have a wedding and you've set uh, October 20th as your wedding date, uh, and there's a death that takes place here, your wedding is postponed because there's no reason to celebrate in the 40 days of mourning. You see, we need to understand the culture that Jesus is dealing with took weeping, wailing, and mourning as a very serious thing, and it was something that was very much a part of their culture. Not something to be pushed away, not something that uh, was to be set aside just for a moment and then let's get back to real life and real business. Notice, because of this cultural shift that we have in Western society, it is not only a spirit of anguish in an active mindset, but it is something that isn't very attractive to us as Americans. It's not very attractive. We do everything in our power to push away agony, to push away anguish. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on the book, on the Sermon on the Mount says, what Jesus condemns is the apparent laughter and happiness of the world by pronouncing upon it a curse. Some of you are sitting there thinking, well, (laughs) this is not one of my favorite messages. Where are the jokes? Where is the hoopla? Where, where is this? And, and, and I don't like this kind of thinking. This is not where I want to be on a beautiful fall Sunday morning. I want to enjoy the joy of the Lord is my strength. And you are saying that Jesus is saying that I need to mourn. I need to be sad. I need to act like a mourner. And that's what Jesus is saying. And the problem is, is for many of us, it has become foreign to us, this idea of mourning. And we haven't even gotten to what we're going to mourn over, but the very idea that Christians would gather together and that there would be a spirit of mourning seems to be so backwards to the society of Christianity that we know. But let me remind you of the 66 books of the Bible. There's one called Lamentations. And it's funny that the only Bible verse we use many times out of Lamentations is the most positive one in the entire book. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. And so we say, okay, yeah, Lamentations is there. Anguish and agony are there. And so let's find Jeremiah on a good moment in a good place where he says, the mercies of God are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. That's Lamentations. No. Our brother Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Why is he weeping? Just he didn't get his Prozac? Come on. 
He weeps because he sees the agony and the pain that sin has brought the world and sin has brought to his own life. And he weeps for his people and for uh, the world because they have rebelled against God, which will bring dreadful consequences to him. And here's the thing. We say that we believe that, that that's a part of our Christianity, but it is the farthest thing from it. Kent Hughes, the pastor, former pastor of College Church in Wheaton, said this, Christians have structured their lives to maximize entertainment and amusement in a way to attempt to make the Christian life one big party. We laugh when we ought to not laugh at all. In fact, we laugh at times that we should be crying. How bad is it? The world, in fact, even Christians would say that something is wrong with a person who is in mourning. Mourning over their sin, mourning over the plight of the world, mourning over all that God has called us to mourn after. And I will tell you that Jesus is flipping that upside down and saying, you are not any more right than when you are mourning as a follower of Christ. Now here's the problem within churches. Why has it turned out this way? It's not so much your fault, it's the preacher's fault. We are preaching sermons in America, and in the pulpits of America, that are about you feeling good. And God help us if we say something that brings uh, you to be cut to the heart. Because that's not what attracts people. What people want is they want to come and hear that things are good, that everything is fine and everything is good. And here's the problem. If we do not preach the hard things, if we do not preach blessed are those who mourn, it will produce a shallow Christianity if it's Christianity at all. And so it would be good for us to leave on a Sunday like this, and quite frankly, each Sunday, with a level of mourning, even over the most joy-filled sermon, because we recognize that that joy-filled sermon comes at a cost, and that cost was Jesus Christ. And we recognize that the great joy and, and happiness that we are able to experience came with the Son of God losing his life. Now notice there are some places that are involved in this morning. Notice the practice commanded, and now we turn to point two, the places that we should be mourning for. And there are some areas. The Bible tells us, while Jesus doesn't give it to us here, at least we don't get it in Matthew's um, articulation of what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, we do recognize that we have other teachings of Jesus and we have other episodes that Jesus shows us on the subject of mourning. And we, of course, have other passages from the prophets to the apostles that lay forth. And this is what we know. We know that mourning needs to be a part of our life, number one, because we are called to lament the losses of life. We need to lament those losses of life. The Bible tells us that it is good and right to mourn when things don't go the way that we want them to. As small as the little disappointments that don't go our way, to the loss of a loved one or friend, to the strife in a marriage, to financial difficulty, we are told that not only are we to mourn over those things and to lament uh, the struggles that we are having, but our mourning is to lead us to do something with it. And First Peter reminds us we are to hurl those losses onto Jesus. We are to cast our anxieties, literally taking the net and throwing it out of our cares and our worries and our concerns and our fears and, and our struggles and our sin. We're to take those and cast them out 
unto God, unto Jesus, because he cares for us. And so some of you right now are mourning, and you're mourning the loss of of issues and and struggles and, and battles lost in the spiritual realm, and God is telling you to cast those cares and concerns on him because he cares for you. He wants you to not stay in that place of loss, but to share those mournings, if you will, with him because he loves you. Notice number two, we are called, and this is probably closest to the text of what Jesus is trying to say, is that we are to be sorrowful over our sin. You see, troubles come and go, and if Jesus is saying just lament the losses, then when those losses are gone, then we no longer are mourners. But if we are to mourn in a perpetual state of mourning, if you will, then there seems to be the idea that the reason for our mourning will be with us all of our lives. Even as we are being comforted, we are still mourning. And it seems to be that what Jesus is saying is the person who recognizes in Matthew 5, 3 that they are poor in spirit, that they are spiritually bankrupt, and not just spiritually bankrupt uh, before they came to know Christ, but they're spiritually bankrupt without Christ intervening and interceding in their lives each and every moment of the day, then they will recognize that there's some mourning to take place. Our mourning comes from the fact that we recognize that our sin cost Jesus his life. It cost the Godhead its fellowship. And we need to recognize and know that when we make friendship with the world and we follow the ways of the world and the ways of the devil, even as believers, when we pursue self instead of pursuing a Savior, we need to recognize the grief that that brings our Heavenly Father. I mean, for some of you as parents, you experience the grief of rebellion of a child. And all the more, on such a larger playing field, God experiences our rebellion, and he's grieved by it. Now notice, as Christians, turn in your Bibles for a moment to the book of James. James tells us what we are to do with our sin. If you don't know where the book of James is, I'll help you. It's in your pew Bibles on page 1012. Page 1012. James speaks to a group of Christians... And he says, hey, because of our ongoing fight with sin, because you and I continue to fall to sin, we need to be in a state of mourning because here we are, saved by God's grace, and we're trampling the grace of God underfoot. And we need to understand that this is not fun in games, that, well, I'll try, and if I fail, then, oh, well, I'm just glad I have salvation. That's not what James seems to say. James says it needs to be a change in our spirits. He goes and he says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, it is to no purpose that the scriptures say that God yearns jealously over the spirit that God has made to dwell in us? But God gives more grace. You see what he's saying there? All the while that we are walking our own way, doing our own thing, God sits there and he says, they're doing their own thing. And I have a choice. I have a choice to condemn them to hell for their sin, 
to walk away from the salvation that I've provided. But God says, as we sang today, even in our sin, God gives more and more grace. Now notice what he goes on and he says. So in light of God giving us more grace that meets us in our time of sin, notice he says, therefore, God says that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You need to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, notice the Spirit. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Now, why in the world would we do that as followers of Jesus Christ? It comes back to beatitude number one, that we continually recognize that we are sinners in need of God's grace and that our sin is an absolute affront to God and God in his love and mercy pours out that grace. And so we have the opportunity to be comforted all the while that we are mourning over our sin. Number three, now notice, it's not just our sin, but notice that there is a mourning over the sin of others or crying over the condition of others. As we examine our own hearts and see, I'm a sinner and my sin has defiled me. It has allowed my depravity to wreak havoc in in my own life and in the lives of others and in my relationship with God. Now once I recognize that, as Isaiah did, he says, I am a man of unclean lips, but he doesn't stay there. He says, I come from a people of unclean lips. What Jesus wants us to mourn is not only our sin, but also the sinful condition of others. And so what he's saying is, is blessed are those who mourn, And we learn that this is the morning that Jesus does. In Luke 19, that which is Palm Sunday, Jesus goes to a high place. After being ushered in on a parade, uh, being praised, singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem is all aglow, if you will, with excitement of Messiah who has come. And Jesus comes to a solitary place where he sees a panoramic view, view of the city. And while the city is filled with excitement, the Bible says in Luke 19.41 that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept. He wept. Well, what does that mean? The word wept there means he burst into tears. He wept aloud. He sobbed deeply. This is more than just a tear streaming down his cheek. The same word is used of Mark 5, 38, speaking how the, fa- the family members of Jairus' daughter came around the death of a young daughter and they were crying and wailing aloud. While everybody was shouting joyful things on Palm Sunday, Jesus was crying over the hard hearts of people. He was weeping because he knew they were going to suffer and die. He was weeping loudly because they were lost. John Knox, the great reformer, carried the burden of the lost people of Scotland all throughout his life. It was said that night after night he prayed on a wooden floor of his house, pleading with God to give the souls of Scotland so that they may receive the good news. 
And his wife, night after night, would plead with him to get off the ground and get some sleep, to which John Knox would say, how can I sleep when my land is not saved? He would say over and over again, give me Scotland or I'll die. So let me ask you this morning, what about us? Do we mourn not only over our own sin, but the sin of others? Does it break our heart as it broke the heart of Jesus that people are on their way to hell? Do you weep over your neighborhood? Do you weep over your workplace? Do you weep over your school that they are lost and in need of a Savior, that they are blind, dead, and held captive by the devil and need redemption? Oh, if we would be a church that would get on our knees and cry over the city of Sugar Grove and the surrounding areas, that we would say, give us this town or we'll die. Oh, might God answer our prayers and allow us to see people come hurting and harass people that would experience the compassion of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we mourners? One final one, I don't want to belabor this, but there is also what I would like to say, the weeping over the world. Our final way our hearts should mourn is in the affairs of the world. We live in a world that has become a depository of our sin. And here's the thing. We are so quick to move away from that. So many times when I hear of of, of sad situations, troublesome things, crimes that are unspeakable, I quickly change it to something that will make my day a little brighter. I push away. I don't want to hear those things. And it is good for us as Christians to hear that. We hear of murders and shootings. Brothers and sisters, this is not far from us. We live in a metropolitan area, a city like Chicago, that will have over 700 shooting deaths in less than a year's time. It should break our hearts. We go to a nation and we look at the travesty of millions upon millions of babies being aborted. Our hearts should be broken of those in elderly homes who are being abused and neglected. It should grip our hearts and say sin is an ugly thing. As we look at our world in a grander sense, we see where innocence is imprisoned. Children are trafficked and defiled, and we see there is much to mourn over where kids are going hungry, where people, a whole generation in Africa is being wiped out because of AIDS. We see children who, who live in squalor, who have no rights of education, where civil rights of all people are not given. And I could go on and on and on. And it is that kind of world that God saw its need and it said that he loved the world that he sent his son. And it should grip our hearts. Blessed are those who mourn. We too should join the choir of creation to look to a day when there will be no more crying and no more tears. That God will come and Christ will wipe away every tear from our eyes because right now there is much to mourn about. There's much to mourn deeply about as a result of sin. But do you know that that's what should move us to ministry? 
Mourning should move us to ministry. It should move us to give. It should move us to go and and reach far off lands. When we see those uh, faces of those in Africa, we we may hear today of, uh, after the message, uh, a message from uh, our friend Pastor Ben in Uganda who is living his life just trying to help a handful of orphans whose parents have been taken away because of AIDS. That should drive us. Our mourning over that children by themselves with no parents, no roof over their heads, should drive us to go and serve in that way. We need to be involved in mourning. Now, how do we do it? You've got to move quickly here, but there's a process to mourning. There's a process. Even though we have looked at four areas of mourning, I want to focus in on our issue of sin and our response to it. Once again, Jesus doesn't tell us in the text how are we to mourn, so we look at the Scriptures and we recognize a couple things. Number one, if we are going to mourn properly, it involves, first of all, recognizing the holiness of God. We must begin there. We will never mourn, hear me out, you will never mourn over your sins if God isn't holy in your life. Because what is sin if there's no holiness? It's just you making decisions. But when you stop and understand that your sin is an affront to a holy God, that it will break any fellowship that you would ever have with God, that it would cause turmoil in your life, when you recognize that our sin does that, then we'll begin to understand that we are a sinful people and the only one who has a right to speak out on that sinfulness is God himself. And God says, my wrath and my indignation is being poured out onto sin. He hates it. He wants nothing to do with it. It was so terrible that what he did was he had to forsake his son on the cross, his beloved and one and only son, because sin was found on our Savior. We have to recognize that and remember it. We need to recognize the payment that was done. We sang a song this morning where it says, where it speaks of the wrath of God being satisfied. Do you know that that song in uh, a new hymnal that has been brought out for churches, this talk about us not wanting to mourn over something, we don't want to talk about God's wrath because that will make us feel bad. Did you know that they've changed the words of that hymn? Instead of the wrath of God being satisfied, it now says the love of God has been satisfied. Love is far more easier to, to swallow, right? God was happy that his love was set. No, God's wrath was satisfied. And it was satisfied by putting a son on the cross. We need to recognize our sin put him there. When Mel Gibson put together the passion, he said, I'm in the movie. And people said, as they watched the movie, you're not there. Where are you? He says, I'm in there. You just need to look a little more closely. And they looked as the extras. Couldn't find him, couldn't find him. And then he finally told the media Where I was at was when Christ was being nailed to the cross. It is me, it's my hands that has the hammer, and it's my hand that has the nails. And it's me crucifying Christ on the cross. When we begin to see our part in the crucifixion of Jesus, we'll start to mourn. We'll start to weep. Our laughter will turn into mourning. Now that leads then, of course, as we recognize the holiness of God, we will regret our sinful ways. Now here's the problem. Regretting and being remorseful is not enough. Even in the unbeliever, regret and remorse is the first inkling towards mourning. You cannot mourn over something if you don't have regret over it. 
You don't mourn over good things. You mourn over bad things. And so when we have remorse or we regret something we've done, it's the beginning of the mourning process. But here's the problem. Many people, in fact, all unbelievers, stop there. They stop and they regret and they're remorseful, but it doesn't involve Jesus. And the best picture of that is Judas. Judas walks and talks with Jesus. He's engaged as a disciple of Jesus, and he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And does it say that he lived happily ever after? No, he regretted it. He was filled with remorse. But what does he do? He doesn't give it to Jesus. He doesn't find comfort, and he hangs himself outside of Jerusalem. And some of you right now are wrestling with regret and remorse. If you could just go back to that singular moment at that decision that you made in the past, your life would be a totally different place. If I had just done it differently, I'd pay all the money in the world to go back to that place. And here's the thing. You live there, and I will tell you, if you do not invite Jesus into it, you will never get beyond it. You'll never get beyond it. You will never be comforted. So regret isn't enough. It must lead to you repenting and living obediently. So you've got Judas, Mr. Regret, Mr. Remorse, and then there's Peter. Peter, that same day, everybody's having a bad day in Jerusalem that day. Judas has betrayed Jesus, and in many ways, Peter betrays Jesus. He disowns him three times. And as that rooster crows, the text tells us that Peter runs outside of the city and he weeps bitterly. He's cut to the heart. He's starting to regret and be remorseful. But understand this, instead of staying away from Jesus, if you will, of keeping Jesus out of it, Peter allows Jesus. And it takes some time. But Jesus is brought back into Peter's life and Peter is able to repent. And Peter takes that spirit of mourning and he would carry it forever in his life. But he's comforted. Jesus three times asked Peter, do you love me? You think it's by any coincidence three times was the number that Jesus uses? And three times Peter says, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know, I love you more than, than these. I love you more than anything, he says. And Jesus says, okay then, let me comfort you. Feed my sheep. Tend to them. And some of you right now have mourning in your past and you can't get over it. And I'm telling you, turn to Jesus. Cast your anxieties and cares on him because he cares for you. It starts with you repenting. It starts with you getting on your knees and, and if necessary, weeping bitterly, saying, Jesus, I've blown it. But your word says I can experience your grace. I need your grace. I need you. And Jesus says that when that happens, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So let me close with this. It says that we'll be comforted. There's a peace that only God can provide. How does he do it? He shows us the meaning of mourning. Why is there mourning going on in our lives? Why does God allow? This is the the, the question that many uh, people will struggle with. Why does God allow good thing or bad things to happen to good people? Uh, number one, it allows for God to comfort the hurting. It allows God to comfort the hurting. 
we will never experience the mercy of God, the comfort of God, unless God allows us to go low, unless God allows us to experience pain. We will never experience his goodness if we've not experienced his pain. Write this passage down, Psalm 116. Psalm 116, verses 1 through 9. In the book of Psalms, we see what he's talking about. And I'll just read this and let this, just allow it to meditate in our hearts and minds. Psalms 116 says the following. It says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Even though the snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. Even though I suffered distress and anguish, then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul, and gracious is the Lord, and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, the Lord saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. You have delivered me. God wants to deliver you who are hurting. Notice that God allows mourning in our lives to call back the wayward. In the story of the prodigal son, Jesus talks of a man who leaves his father, even though he's alive, he leaves his father with the inheritance that he demanded of his father. And in Luke 15, we are told that bad things begin to happen to this young man. He runs out of food. He loses his job while he was giving his life to loose living and and all kinds of fun and debauchery. He comes to a place where God brings him to a low place in his life. A place where he now finds himself fighting over, uh, over with the pigs the food that he's going to eat. And it's there that he remembers that at his father's table even the servants are well fed. You see, mourning is brought into our lives to bring us back. And some of you right now are experiencing mourning right now. You're experiencing pain and suffering, and you're asking, well, why, Lord, am I not being comforted? Because you're in a far-off land right now. You're unwilling to return to the God who loves you so very much, and God continues to allow his discipline on you until you get it, until I get it, that i got to return to Jesus. I've got to return to him. And so until we are willing to hear the call of our Heavenly Father for us to come back, we will find ourselves in a state of mourning but one that is not comforted. Number three, God allows mourning in our life as a way to challenge our laziness, our spiritual laziness. Romans 5, 3 says that God allows our sufferings. In Romans 5, verse 3, he says this, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. How in the world do we rejoice in our sufferings? We rejoice because we have been comforted as we mourn. Here's all these paradoxes. Because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we recognize that God allows sorrows into our lives to grow us, 
That is why we can consider it pure joy, my brothers, when trials of many kinds come upon us. We're able to experience that. And when we experience that, turning it over to God, God says we will find comfort. And that comfort is that we'll be encouraged, we'll be brought hope, we'll be strengthened in our walk, character will be built in us. And it is there that we can find hope in even the greatest times of sorrow. And finally, it compels us to care for others. As we mourn, over our own sin, over the sin of others, over the spiritual state of the world that we live in, it will lead us to something. 2 Corinthians, and I'll close with this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. What does he do? Listen, mourners. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to do what? To comfort those who are in any confliction, affliction with the comfort which we ourselves have been comforted by God. And so here's the thing. The reason why God wants us to be mourners is that as we experience hardship, as we experience struggles and find our comfort in God, God then, in turn, gives us what we need to be a comfort for others. So my parents who have lost a loved one, their oldest son, God didn't do that just to to cause them pain and suffering. He did it to grow my parents' faith. He did that to uh, show them that he draws near to the hurting. And he he did that So that one day, and it's happened numerous days, that when my parents come in contact with someone who has lost someone close, especially a son, my parents can put their arm around them and say, we know what you feel. We know what you're experiencing. We know the pain and anguish. We get it. You need Jesus. Because that's the only thing that got us through this 20 years ago. And it will be the only thing that will get you through this. And so you who struggle with depression, you who struggle with issues in your marriage, uh, you who have gone through horrific battles with sin, God didn't allow you just to go through those things just to, to say you've gone through them. He's given you those experiences and those struggles so that you can put your arm around somebody and say, yeah, it hurt to be there. But comfort comes from the Lord. And so we mourn and we grieve. But Paul tells us we don't grieve as those without hope. We grieve because we know what our sin has done to a holy God, but we have hope, and that hope is Jesus Christ. So blessed are those who mourn. Because of Jesus Christ, we shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, we are a sinful people. And while you have allowed for laughter and fun, and you've given us happiness, Lord, you say laughter is good medicine. We recognize at moments like this, as we have partaken in your supper, that there's much to mourn over. Lord, I have wronged you this week and I've gone about my days not repenting those things, not even at times regretting those things. And Lord, this is a reminder that says shame on me. Lord, we are a people 
who have offended you greatly. And Lord, let that offense be brought to our minds that we'll never forget that, that we will never then take for granted your grace because we mourn over our sin. Lord, we mourn over the sin of others. Lord, we mourn over the sin of of the sinful world around us. Lord, we see the absolute disaster that comes when we live for sin instead of a Savior. And so, Lord, we confess that to you. Break our hearts for the things that break yours so that we may get closer to the heart of God and in turn that we may live according to your will and word. Now, Lord, we're going to go into a world that says, I'm fine, you're fine, everything's fine. Remind us that there are hurting people. Lord, some don't even know it at this point that need your gospel. Let us be bold and let us pray for them. Let us speak to them and show acts of love to them so that they may see you in the process. Oh, God, we love you. And we're so thankful for your word and what it teaches us. Now change us by your spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.